to remain standing and pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit, now and fulfill your promise, Lord, to bring to our remembrance everything that Jesus has said to us, Lord, a remembrance that is not just in our minds, but that draws us in to the truth of God's word so that we experience it again as if we are hearing it for the very first time. Lord, please be upon me, your preacher this morning. Lord, grant me wisdom and insight and the ability to communicate the scriptures, Lord. In fact, Lord God, we would pray that you would take the, the poor offering of human speech and, and by your spirit do a miracle and bring forth good fruit from that. And Lord, be with all of us that we might be able to receive the implanted word of God, and by doing so, that we may grow to maturity, and being mature, we would produce fruit in your kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated, you may be seated. So at home, y'all go ahead at home and sit down now. Raise your hand if you're in your pajamas. See, I can't see that. <laughs> All that will change one day soon. There is so much going on in this text in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11 this morning. And so we're going to kind of just jump right in without a lot of introductory remarks. But, remarks, but just to kind of give you a little background, today's gospel text, John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, is a part of the larger farewell discourse that runs from John 13 to the end of John 17. So what's going on in this discourse, or these, this is like Jesus' preparation for his disciples about what is to happen to him in just the next few hours. He will be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he will be tried, he'll be, he'll be tortured, he'll be crucified, and then he'll be raised on the third day. And he is preparing his disciples in this discourse for his suffering, his death, and then what comes after. And in that context knowing that the hour of his passion is upon him, Jesus gives the very last of what have been now seven I am statements. There are seven I am statements in John's gospel, and this is the last one. Jesus says this, the beginning of this passage, I am the true vine, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So Jesus is using a metaphor of the vine. So the, he says he is the true vine. Well, in the Old Testament, Israel was often referred to as Yahweh's, as the Lord's vine, as the Lord's vineyard. As a matter of fact, we hear it over and over again. But let me give you an example. John, I mean, uh, Psalm chapter, Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9. Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9 you brought a vine out of Egypt, referring to Israel. This is the psalmist speaking of the Lord. Lord, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground. It took deep root and filled the land. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he is saying that all that the God of Israel meant the vine of Israel to be, all of the hopes and dreams of God having a faithful covenant people that would fill the earth and bless the earth are embodied now, have been brought to a point, are embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the perfect fulfillment of God's sovereign desire that God at first expressed in Israel. And now to be a part, listen, to be a part of that vine 
that covenant people to be in God's Israel is to be in Christ. We are in Christ and then incorporated into that vine of God's covenant people. The second person identified in this passage is the vine dresser, the, the gardener. So Jesus says that the Father is the vine dresser. Well, what does that mean? And this is important as we move through this text. It means that the Father, listen, is superintending. He's the gardener. You know, we're, we are gardening. A lot of people do, are doing this right now. And if you're a gardener, you are out really paying attention. Um, you know, first thing we do in the morning usually is we go out and look at the garden and see what happened. Now, that just sounds thrilling not to a lot of people. But it, for gardeners, it, you really have this passion about what's going on. So like uh, yesterday in the beginning of the day, um, the, the pea vines were just kind of out there doing their little thing. They've grown up. Uh, and maybe there's one or two little pea blossoms, pretty little pea blossoms. But at the end of the day, we came back to the garden, and it, all of the blossoms were open on the pea vine. Stuff happens, and gardeners are attending to it. And that's what Jesus is saying that the vine dresser is like. Same thing is true of vineyards as it is of gardens. Jesus says that the Father is superintending. He is watching over. He's cultivating everything that is happening to Jesus and through Jesus. So what is shortly to occur in Jesus' arrest and trial and torture, crucifixion and resurrection are all a part of the careful planning and design of the vine dresser, and they are under his care. Nothing is escaping his gaze. Nothing is escaping his careful tending. And so in this metaphor, therefore, Jesus, in metaphor, therefore, how many times can we do something like that? I'll find out. So in this metaphor, Jesus is the true vine. The Father is the vine dresser. And then you and I are in this passage. He's speaking of his disciples. The final characters in this metaphor are his disciples, the branches connected to the vine. And with that in mind, that's where I want us to place our focus this morning because Jesus spends the preponderance of this text talking about that relationship of branches and vines. This is a passage preparing disciples for what discipleship actually looks like. And the first thing that is presented to us in this metaphor, the very pl first place Jesus goes, is that he gives us a picture of judgment and discipline. Yay! Judgment and discipline. Well, you know, I, <laughs> it's in there, so we're in a deal with it. I, I find myself having actually to speak frequently about judgment uh, because it is a biblical doctrine. It is an inescapable doctrine. And it is so necessary to our discipleship. But, you know, that doctrine of judgment is avoided by Christians and is hated by the world. So modern Christians, Western Christians in particular, people who don't have a lot of bad things happen to them, don't like judgment. If you live in some place where people are doing bad things to you, that might come as a consolation. But we don't tend to really like that stuff about judgment in the West. In fact, the world hates it so much that uh, John Piper, uh, that great Anglican pastor, <laughs> he's so close. So close. Now, John Piper, um, a, a Reformed Baptist, not that he's gotten over being a Baptist. He's a Baptist who is a part of that Reformed tradition. John Piper has an audiobook or had an audiobook up on YouTube for free. He does all this stuff for free. What a great servant of the Lord. And his audiobook was called, it is called Coronavirus in Christ. You can still get the MP3 
for free. Just go out and Google it. But it just got banned. That book, Coronavirus and Christ, just got banned, banned from YouTube. Had to take it off this week because he dared to show the truth of God's judgment for sin from the text of Scripture. So to talk of God's judgment, therefore, according to YouTube, violates community standards for their video platform. But even here in this farewell discourse that's supposed to be encouraging and preparatory for the disciples, Jesus prepares his disciples for what is about to happen by speaking of judgment. So let's go to that. Verse 2 again, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. And then he picks up that same theme in verse 6, John 15, 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So the unfruitful branches are cut off. This is the vision of judgment. Now this is important, uh, but we need to read the theology of John's gospel within the book of John's gospel. So in the context of John's gospel, we need to ask ourselves this question about those unfruitful vines, or unfruitful branches, I should say. Are these unfruitful branches genuine followers of Jesus Christ, believers who just aren't making the grade? Are, they, are these unfruitful branches just not producing? You're unfruitful, you're not producing. Oh yeah, you're a real Christian, you're just not producing enough. Went through, your, you didn't meet your quota, you're fired. Well, if we take John at his own words in context, that seems to not be the case. That is not the case in John's gospel. Instead, these are individuals who, uh, who visually, visibly, appear to be connected to Jesus, appear to be connected to the true vine, appear to be connected to the community of the disciples, but do not have a life-transforming, saving relationship, intermingling, abiding life in Christ. And in fact, we can see this in other places in John's Gospel. In John chapter 6, another one of the long discourses, that's the bread of life discourse. In John 6, Jesus is, address, is addressing a large crowd of his followers, very large crowd it says. And that entire group are referred to as what in John chapter 6? As disciples, as disciples. And so Jesus says to that group of visible disciples, this is what he says in John 6 verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. Now wait a second, I thought they were disciples. Yes, they're visibly connected to Christ. He's done a lot of miracles. They like some of the folks that hang out with him. But they are not believers. It says, for Jesus, it goes on to say, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. And then listen to what verse 66 says about these disciples. After this, many of his disciples, what? Turned back and no longer walked with him. So they had a visible, a surface connection to Jesus, but his life was not in them. And in another Johannine text, in 1 John, the little letter of 1 John 2, verses 18 and 19, this same idea, and this is 
whether First John is by the gospel writer or not, they're certainly within the same stream of ancient Christianity, New Testament Christianity, share many of the same ideas, many of the same metaphors. And here's what that, that says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. The, John the Elder writes, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. Now listen to what John says about these Antichrist people. Where do these people come from? John says in verse 19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So that's who these unfruitful branches are in this passage. It's not people who's like, oh man, I sure hope I'm bearing enough fruit. I mean, do I, who do I need to compare my fruit production to to make sure I'm not an unfruitful branch? No, these are people who were, were visibly attached. These are the branches that do not bear fruit. They are attached to the Lord and to His church visibly, but inwardly are not united to Christ. And you know, this has been a, a, a fact, a reality about the church since the earliest days. St. Athanasius said this, or he is accredited as saying this, he said that the floor of hell is paved with the skulls of bishops. In other words, just because they put a pointy hat with mud flaps on you does not mean that you are a true believer. Amen? <laughs> I lost Father Shane. <laughs> Jesus is preparing his followers for the reality that not everyone in the visible, in the visible Christian community is truly abiding in Christ, truly born again. Why would, they, why would he do that? So that they would not be despairing and disappointed and disillusioned when they see this happen. And these will eventually turn on Christ and his church and walk away and even do harm, just as Judas, example number one, has already in the course of the, the uh, farewell discourse, already gone out to do by the time we get to John 15. So Jesus says in this metaphor of the vine, get ready for betrayal. Now on the other hand, fruitful branches, genuine disciples, what does he say about them? He says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So what is the reward? What is the blessing for being fruitful? Having stuff cut off. Yes, pruning. Yay, Jesus, prune me, prune me, said no one ever. <laughs> but it is a necessary part of being a fruitful disciple. Jesus, Jesus, well, Jesus and Lisa, I guess. This is an example of using Lisa, not Jesus. Lisa, my wife, uh, is, is defoliating the garden. That's really a word. She's defoliating the garden right now. She has been the primary uh, uh, vegetable gardener, I'm the primary flower gardener. And, uh, or at least that's how the division of labor is going on at the moment. And so the potato plants and the tomato vines have lots at this point, lots, especially the potatoes, lots of just lush, 
beautiful foliage. As a matter of fact, I have never seen such beautiful leaves on a potato plant in my whole life as we have in our garden. But she has been going through the garden, cutting off the bottom leaves of the potatoes and popping off the extraneous sucker branches from the tomato vines. All that beautiful foliage, and it is gone. But you know what, brothers and sisters? We are not growing potato foliage. And we are not growing tomato foliage. We are growing potato tubers and tomato fruit. That's what we want. And that excess foliage, that excess foliage actually draws off the nutrition that the plant needs to be fruitful. Instead of going to making lush fruit, that's going to go now to potato tubers and tomato fruit. By cutting off and trimming back, we will have more fruit. Now, it looks severe. But it looks cruel to the plant. You know what? I don't think the potato beds are as pretty now because we cut all those, she cut all those, those branches off. It looks like it would hurt if you were a potato plant or a tomato vine to have that stuff happen to you. But the same thing happens to us in the Christian life. The vine dresser, the father, is pruning us. And that pruning process reveals this, and this is the good news about being pruned. It reveals that God is intimately concerned about our individual lives. Lisa has to pay attention to every single plant and give it her undivided attention to do that work properly. That means the Father's doing the same thing for you and for me. He is individually attentive to your life. That is good news. Fruitful gardens demand meticulous care and constant attention. That's the attention that God is directing to you and me. And one commentator has said, and I love this, even though it looks like pruning is harsh or maybe painful, and it is, but one commentator has said God's hand is never closer than when he prunes the vine. God's hand is never closer than when he prunes the vine. It seems cruel, it can hurt. In fact, pruning results in the Christian life in real loss. Discipleship will involve real loss. But God only prunes or cuts off those things that are sucking the life out of us as believers, that make us unfruitful. And so Jesus is saying in this metaphor, Get ready for discipline. It doesn't sound very comfortable or exciting, but it does mean that we're being tended, and the result is beautiful fruit in Christian living. God sovereignly will use external events and circumstances to prune us and make us more fruitful. He cuts out of our lives in order to bring abundance. And so here's a paradox. Listen, in the submitted Christian life, loss brings abundance. In the submitted Christian life, in the abiding Christian life, loss under God's sovereign care brings future abundance. You might know about Amy Johnston Flint, and I'm reading actually from a book where this is recounted, but Amy Johnston Flint lived most of her life in pain. She was orphaned early in life. Her body was embarrassed by incontinence, weakened by cancer and twisted and deformed by rheumatoid arthritis. She was incapacitated for so long that according to one eyewitness, 
She needed seven or eight pillows around her body just to cushion the raw sores that she suffered from being bedridden. Yet her autobiography is right, listen to this, her autobiography is rightly called The Making of the Beautiful. The Making of the Beautiful. That's her autobiography. Here is a woman who knew that the pain and loss of the vine dresser's pruning knife results in the vine dresser's greatest abundance. And so she wrote these familiar words. He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Abundance comes from the vine dresser's pruning. You know, it does make me wonder, though. Let me see if what you think. Let's ponder this, or at least let me propose the question. Is it possible that one of the things that is happening in God's church, in God's church right now, through this pandemic, is that God is cutting off the lifeless and unfruitful branches and pruning the fruitful. False and unfruitful will be cut off. You know, I think that in many churches, there'll be people we never see again after this. Unfruitful, cut off. But the fruitful will become more fruitful because we will have seen what has been sucking the life out of our church and out of our Christian lives. Now, Jesus takes another move in this metaphor. There's a second thing we see in this metaphor of the vine, and that is the Christian life is one of intimate dependence. Intimate dependence. Jesus says in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine... Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And apart, of me, and apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, that word abide occurs ten times in eleven verses. Do you think maybe Jesus is trying to make a point? It means intimate, indwelling dependence. It is the interdependence, and Jesus says, I abide in the Father, and the Father abides in me. And he wants that same kind of interdependent life, existence, love relationship between the vine and the branches. Christians are people who are intimately connected to and drawing life, drawing life from Jesus. That branch has no life in and of itself. It doesn't take very long for that tomato sucker to be popped off and you see it lying there and it shrivels right up. In the same way, we have no life in ourselves. We're not created to be autonomous or self-sufficient. And Jesus gets even more, and I love this part, he gets even more specific 
in what this abiding is about, his abiding language. This is John 15, verse 9. I love this. As the Father has loved me, you think about that, the intimate love between the Father and the Son. So I have loved you, abide in my love. See, abiding in Jesus means resting in and remaining in his love. And, you know, last week I apologized for uh, not talking enough about heaven as your pastor. And here's what I want to apologize for this week is not, not talking enough about just how much God loves each branch on the vine. You are intimately loved by God. You are precious. You are as precious to the Father as the great vine Jesus Christ is himself. Jesus and the Father mutually indwell one another in love. And the branches, you and I, are to mutually indwell with Jesus in love. I in him and he in me. Now, I finally, uh, I got to experience that a little bit this week. I got, uh, the state parks are open, again, partially open. Uh, they're just, if you're watching this and you're getting information from that statement, you, you also need to know there are no bathrooms open in the state park. So I just want you to know that before you get there and, and find out that you might have an issue. So, but anyway, to get onto the state park, to where I went hiking, you, had to, you actually had to hike into the state park. The, the parking lots in the park itself were not open. So you had parking areas designated. On, you go to the website, North Carolina State Parks, and find out about that. But I hiked in, and I finally got to go back on my prayer hike. I need that so much. And you know what, uh, friends, my, my prayer life got unstuck. It was so good. But I want to just tell you that, um, that this really is a real thing, that abiding in Jesus, uh, being just what, you know, I, I was praying in the spirit and with the understanding all over that state park, hiking those trails, and as the, <laughs> the clogs in my prayer life got unclogged, uh, I just began to abide again. It's so wonderful to have him feel, to feel that external source of refreshing and life and love that comes from the outside into us and then flows back out from us back in love to God and the world that he created. And so part of that was abiding in Christ, being filled with his love, is that it reignited my love for his people and his church. My, my intercessory life was energized by that as well. Remain in his love. Finally, Jesus in this metaphor of the vine and the vine dresser and the branches, shows us that the abiding life is a fruit-bearing life. If you are abiding in Christ, certain things are going to naturally arise. Okay, what did Jesus say? He said that if you abide in me and I abide in you, you're going to bear fruit. You know, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you are living the Christ life, abiding in him and he in you, it is the natural result of being connected to the vine to bear fruit. None of those little tomato branches are straining and making a lot of noise, saying, ah, tomato, come forth. No, you never hear that. You can drive all over the Yadkin Valley through all those vineyards. You don't hear little, little branches on, on those grapevines groaning and struggling, make a grape. No, it's just the natural thing that happens when you're attached to the grapevine. 
And the first fruit that results from abiding in Christ is the fruit of, listen, an invigorated, powerful prayer life. An invigorated, powerful prayer life. John 15, 7. This is out, an outrageous statement from Jesus. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then he, he uses an imperative. He is like telling you to do something. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask, imperative. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. A powerful and invigorated prayer life. Resting in Jesus and being saturated, if my words, saturated in his word, those are the keys to an empowered prayer life. By the way, this is why morning prayer and evening prayer in the Anglican way of being a Christian are just, just brimming over with God's Word. It's kind of like, I mean, if you come into an Anglican evening prayer service or morning prayer service for the very first time, first time you hear the words, you hear the term prayer, morning prayer, evening prayer, and you think you're going to show up and they're just going to be praying right away. No, 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 no. We pump you full of God's word for like three quarters of the time, and then we'll let you loose to pray. Why is that? Because it's actually that, that the words of Jesus are forming me inwardly in my prayer life so that I begin to pray back to him the very things that he wills and desires. And as I do that, I can ask whatever I will, and he'll do it. It's amazing, y'all. This prayer stuff is amazing. Gives us a superpowered prayer life. John Knox, we actually have had, a, he was one of um, our Wake students. Uh, we had one of John Knox's actual linear descendants attending Christ Church for a while. I don't know how that Scotch Presbyterian felt about him showing up in the church that uh, was the Church of England at one point. But he worshiped with us, was a part of this congregation. But John Knox, the Scottish reformer, long to see revival and reformation break out in, the, in Scotland in the 16th century during that time of the early reformation. And his great prayer was this, give me Scotland or I die. Give me Scotland. Give me Scotland or I die. He probably didn't say it like that. But that was his heart's prayer. And you know what? God gave him Scotland. Mary, Queen of Scots, said this, she said, I fear the prayers, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Wow! Because that was a man who abided in Christ. I fear the prayers, I fear a monarch. I fear the prayers of John Knox more than I fear the assembled armies of Europe. That's one of the fruits of abiding in the vine. Jesus said that one of the fruits of abiding in him is that it is a, we will have a life that gives glory to God. A life that gives glory to God. Jesus says in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you, by this he's glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. A life that glorifies God. 
back years ago when we lived in Fayetteville, uh, I, and actually it was a wonderful time in our family's life. Our children were young, we were homeschooling, we had a wonderful community of friends. We never thought we wanted to live in, in, in Fayetteville, North Carolina. If you're from North Carolina, you might have heard bad stories. They're not true. Uh, but we learned to love that, that military community. One of the benefits of living in a military community, or at least in Fayetteville, is that um, there are a lot of barbershops, and they're very inexpensive, you know, soldiers, haircuts, right? And so uh, I always went to the Korean barbershop. And I don't know if this is like this everywhere, there, there are, are Korean barbershops or military communities, but I went to the Korean barbershop because not only did you get a good haircut, you got a neck rub and a shoulder rub at the end thrown in for free. Does that happen in the Philippines? Praise God. May their tribe increase. You know, I mean, I, 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 so many times I almost fell asleep in that barber's chair. And I, I remember uh, having a chat with this one barber, and she was talking about, she said, and in her, her very clipped and, uh, and, and actually humorous way of speaking, she said, uh, she, she was right put out. She said, my son's become one of those born-again Christians. And he's going to one of those redneck churches. <laughs> he's, got, he's become a born-again Christian. He's going to one of those redneck churches. <laughs> and, and she was a little put out because, you know, he'd rejected his native Buddhism in favor of Jesus. But then this is what his mama, his Buddhist mama, his Buddhist mama said. You know, everything in his life has changed. He is a different person. He is a better person. This young man had accepted Christ and abided in him, and now his life was bringing glory to God even from the mouth of his unbelieving mother. Jesus said, being, abiding in him, one of the fruits of that is that we are in the love of God. I've already spoken of this a little bit, but listen again to verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. How much of your waking hours are devoted to, to just thinking, you know, I am invited to, like, to, to rest in God's love, to just lay back into his arms of love. I don't, I don't have to be striving and doing all the time. He, he wants me to rest in his love. God's love flowing into us, us feeling and knowing that we are loved. The, the core need of every human being. One of the first things that happened as a new Christian was I just, I had felt, I felt loved in a way I'd never felt before. And I knew my mom and daddy loved me, but never felt that. And then all that love flowing back to Jesus and the Father and then out to the John 3.16 world that he loves so much. It just can't get any better than that. And then Jesus closes this part of his discourse. He's preparing them for betrayal, for pruning, for fruit bearing, preparing them for intimate dependence. All these things are about to happen. And in the context of all this, Jesus says... There is the fruit of joy. That's how he closes this out. Verse 11, all these things, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. Not your joy, my joy. That's a better joy. My joy in you and that your joy, which is now my joy, 
will be full. So much so that you can't bear it any longer. There have been times in the Christian life, and you know, they'll come again. They're sovereignly offered. They're sovereignly gifted as we walk this pilgrim way, as we're on the way to the kingdom. From time to time, God will pour out such an abundance of joy and ravish us with His love when we are in His presence in our prayer closet or on the state park trail or even gathered together in worship where we almost say, in fact, we sometimes have cried out, God, you've got to stop it. I can't take any more. That really happens. I can't bear it. It's so good. Why? Because it's not my joy. It's the joy of the Creator God of the universe filling my heart, filling my life. And yes, as you know, um, out in the garden again, uh, out there gardening with my ugly straw hat on, that makes you a real gardener. That's real gardener attire. I wear bev overalls and a straw hat. Take that. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> but as you're gardening and the sun is out, it's a beautiful day. Every now and then what happens? A cloud will obscure the sun. Did the sun go away? Is the sun gone? Did the sun really stop existing? No. It's just obscured. And you know, I think that's the way it is with joy in the Christian life. Yes, there are times of loss, genuine grief, sadness, but it's just like, just like we know the sun is always there, even in the midst of loss and grief and sadness and even pain. In the background in the Christian life, there is that joy that can come breaking through. It's not gone. It's still there. G.K. Chesterton said that joy, which was the small publicity of the pagan, is the glorious secret of the Christian. That joy is still there waiting to break out again, and it does. It never goes away. So, brothers and sisters, what a tremendous passage of Scripture. John 15, 1 through 11. This metaphor of the vine. Jesus is, is preparing us for our walk as disciples, and he closes on that point of joy. Please, dear friends, if you're listening to me, Christian, remember, remember that the joy is still there. And as we return to him and abide in him, we get saturated in his word, we pray, and we come to his table. Don't be surprised if the clouds break and the sun of his joy shines blindingly through to the point where you can have to say, you've got to pull back. I can't stand any more than this. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.